and welcome to Hiden Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Ivo Bokulik, who is the Associate Principal Violist of San Jose Chamber Orchestra and a Section Violist in Opera San Jose and Berkeley Symphony. He is also a member of the Unconducted Chamber Orchestra, One Found Sound, and Magic Magic Orchestra, both based in San Francisco. And we'll be talking about his stylistic aesthetic via fashion. Welcome, ma'am. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, miss. Thank you for having me. You were one of a few of my friends that for me, the moment that we really first interacted, we just knew that we were going to be friends just was a very natural connection. And I remember, well, there's a couple times one was on the Muni, I think we were taking the N light rail, and I think kind of saw or knew that we existed while sharing a same car. But for me, it was at Cafe Creme or Harmony <laughs> Cafe, where you used to work, it was between your gap year of finishing your undergraduate and starting your master's degree at San Francisco. Conservatory right. of Music. Cafe Creme is the little cafe that is actually in the ground floor of the conservatory. So it's actually kind of a hub for a lot of interaction with the students and faculty. So I remember, I think I was getting a bagel or something like that. And you're taking my order and there was just, I was like, oh, I like this guy. We're going to get along. <laughs> and I think from there, it was, I think, especially when you started doing your master's at the conservatory, we started to do a lot more chamber music together, including the Ludislavsky String Quartet together as mm -hmm. one of our chamber music projects, which to this day is, I'm really grateful that we had that opportunity to learn that piece because it's not something that you regularly will play. And it takes a lot of mathematics and it takes a lot of focus to really do it justice. And I think we really did. I'm quite proud of our results of our concert. Yeah. And of course, from there as well, we were also students that participated in the Music To Go program at the conservatory, which is a program for outsiders to hire musicians and the students at the conservatory to go play for weddings or business events or whatnot, you know, whatever you have you. And it was a really lucrative way for students to make some money on the side. There's so many memories from just doing those little gig moments together. Do you want to tell the story of the Ave Maria disaster? Sure. Yeah, that's one of my, oh God, probably the most I've ever cracked up at a gig ever, crying, everything, you name it. But yeah, we were playing a string trio gig with Chris Whitley, who's now in Talia String Quartet. We were playing the Bach Gounod version of Ave Maria. And I think the way the arrangement works and got laid out in the book is the cello part plays bass line, half notes, whole notes on the first page. And then turn the page and you suddenly have all 16ths, all the arpeggios. <laughs> and I think just the way it caught you off guard, it just, nobody recovered. Like we just <laughs> started losing our minds. Something that really did it for me was since we were outside and it was really bright and sunny, I had sunglasses on and I saw that Chris, like I saw like tears falling from underneath Chris's <laughs> Well, just from frame laughing, and so, the, yeah, from restrained laughter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was the rest of the piece. We never recovered. It was hysterical. Just like being privy to the meltdown. It was so well, great. Well, right. Just, and, and so you, you know, just, see me struggling and fuming because I'm trying to play all these arpeggios that came out of nowhere, but at the same time <laughs> laughing at myself for what I was even producing in that moment. And then listening yeah. to the beauty over whatever hell was happening <laughs> underneath. <laughs> and then of course everyone else was just laughing at the whole scenario and of course it oh, had to so be great. like Ave Maria like one of the most beautiful uh -huh. melodies of all time so <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. sorry to whoever hired me for that particular 
um, <laughs> of it. But yeah, I did not expect any of those. Are, they were not written in a way that was predictable. And I think that was part of the reason why I was I see. zooming. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> that's one of the memories. I mean, there might be some more that pop up as we continue on. But do you have a memory that you want to share? It's in a similar vein and touching upon that Ludoslavsky string quartet you brought up earlier. It's very much a highlight of my musical life career, if you will. If I think about what I'm most proud of, I think of that performance. Like it is still today the only thing I've ever uploaded to YouTube <laughs> myself. It's one of the only things I've performed where I literally went into a trance. It felt like four minutes long and I couldn't believe what had happened, you know, when we finished. And I think you've said that you feel very much the same way about it. That's funny memories from that piece specifically. I remember um, a lot of passages were marked by a pizzicato chord, the cellist oh, no. had to execute. Most of the time, that was like the cue for the other three players were going on. And I remember they would be like extremely awkward, quadruple stop, the hand frame was really position. bizarre, yeah. tricky to get. And there were sometimes like, like I saw you out of the corner of my eye preparing it and like, ah, oh, and then <laughs> it's coming, you know? <laughs> and then <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> sorry guys, ah! And there's just something, I just love that about you, like how you care so much. And I just love seeing how, you know, you would be like, ah! <laughs> That's like so endearing to me. And I thought it was so sweet, but it's also hilarious. Just, I'm like, oh no, like I see it. It's coming. Like I see the, <laughs> <laughs> the preparation. <laughs> like, oh Lord, are we going to, will we be going on? I don't know <laughs> um, what's about to happen. And then the second little story was we performed that a second time at my graduate recital. Like I just put it on last at the end of the program. Just kind of like bulldoze everybody with it <laughs> in the suite way but I remember I don't know if it was all four of us but several of us got rehairs just before yes and with all due respect I don't know if it was the best done job because I remember by the end of the quartet there are pictures there's just thousands of bow hairs hanging off of everyone's bows like it was yes. like such a battleground oh I don't know. I just, it's so funny how so many things I look back at that piece to get a rush, you know, still, yeah. I think both of us listened to it. Like we pulled up that YouTube link the other night and just put it on and like went on the ride, went on the journey. It's, it's so emotional. Uh, yeah. Listening that, to it. Well, and I think for us too, it's emotional because simply because of the piece, but because of how much we devoted ourselves to learning mm -hmm. and really mastering it. And that piece I might've mentioned on a previous episode, but it's aleatoric, meaning that it's played based on signals from other people. It's not actually like Beethoven string quartet where everything lines up always at the same time. So it really depends on the members of the group. And so some of it's left up to chance, really. And so mm -hmm. what I also found interesting now looking back at it is that we purposefully sat distanced on stage uh, yeah, because right. Ludoslavsky intended for none of us to really try to have a score and put anything together that we were supposed to be four separate entities playing things at the same time. So we actually did distance ourselves similar to what a lot of quartets are doing these days because of COVID. But that was just <laughs> an artistic decision. Um, right. It's just funny now that it's- What a coin keating. 
we were yeah. ahead of our time. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think trendsetters. That. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no. no, but and just <laughs> to mention again, the other members of that quartet were Joshua Peters and Amy Hillis mm-hmm. in the trenches there with us as well. Certainly, yeah. yes. I just yeah. before we get to the Spitfire questions, I did want to say how fun it is to be your friend sometimes because you have to learn a new language when you become friends with Evo <laughs> because the way you spell things via text is <laughs> some of the most creative ways to go about and I personally love doing that and it brings yet another aspect back to our friendship I'm sure there's more things that are going to pop in my head the whole time that we're recording but are you ready for some Spitfire questions oh I sure hope so let's (laughs) give it a whirl (laughs) Mozart or Beethoven Beethoven Shostakovich or Prokofiev (gasps) oh brutal Prokofiev Oh, I'm surprised. I thought you would have said Shostakovich. Mm-hmm. That's brutal. It's really tough. Netflix yeah. or video? Do you want me to ask? Oh, video games. Okay. Yeah, that's easy. <laughs> basil or cilantro? Oh, Lord. Basil. Harry Potter, Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings? Harry Potter. Symphony or chamber music? Yowza. Chamber music. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Favorite practice room? Yeah, I really did love Jody's, Jody Levitt's, my teacher of six years. I really loved her studio because it had ridiculously high ceilings. And if you could get it, it was just a treat. And I actually, mentally, I liked to play there because I felt I would be that much more comfortable at my next lesson just because I literally played whatever I needed to for my next lesson already in that space. So I wasn't as shell-shocked. That sounds too dramatic, but yeah, yeah just to it. be a little bit more comfortable. So I, I guess I would say her studio because it was a really, really nice room. And it felt special if you could get it and like hunker down in it. Favorite professor shout out? Ooh, I really liked... Dr. Homan at the conservatory again. He basically taught all the regular classes, you know, <laughs> history, whatever you picture of studying perhaps at a more standard place, but just classy, cultured, so knowledgeable, incredible preparation and presentation, immaculate lessons that you could tell he put his heart and soul into. I was so excited. How is he going to tell us about this story, this time in his history. And I never once felt that he had his opinion or his agenda. He laid it all out there, many different viewpoints and possible interpretations of historic events. Yeah, he got you to actually use your noggin. And I really enjoyed his classes. And he's so sweet. I mean, he just wrote me a message on my birthday the other day and we did a little life update. Yeah, so much respect for him. Most inspired musical hero of any genre? Any genre? Oh dear. For now, I will say I've recently been really impressed with the violinist Augustin Hadelik. His musicianship just been blowing me away, especially in the pandemic. He's just, his output is so arresting like in this time too. He's just like going to town. I love it. He's also like a miracle in and of itself because he was in that terrible house fire, right? And he had to relearn to play. So I think that that's partially the reason he's so incredible because he went through such a harrowing experience and he can pull from that time in his life perhaps or like that determination 
transition to come out of that transformed. Anyway, I would say right now he's been yeah, blowing my socks off. So, Is there any particular piece or Amazing. performance that you would direct our listeners to either listen or watch him? Ooh, you know, this is a little silly. I don't know why this appeals so much to me, but I literally went through some of his YouTube uploads playing Concerti with orchestras, but I would watch the encore. I loved being able to see the musicians in the orchestra listening and reacting to him. I don't know why that's so appealing to me, but I liked seeing the looks on their faces and taking him in and versus when they have to just accompany. So there is the Detroit Symphony accompanying him on the first Paganini violin concerto, and he plays this guitar transcription called Recuerdos de la Alhambra, and it features this really complicated guitar technique, but recreated on violin where you're keeping the bow bouncing the entire time, like like the same note. It's I can't imagine. And he makes it sound like music. It's not just about, look at me, look what I can do this technique. It's so enjoyable. And that to me is like greatest achievement you can take, including his Paganini, obviously. He wrote his own cadenza. I would direct people to that though and make sure to watch that encore as well. Yeah, like I seeing someone it. take something that's just kind of like pyrotechnics and making it, making it music. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, you are certainly not the first person to mention him as the- That's good. I'd find it difficult to find someone that would say that he is not up mm. to the hype. Ah, yes. Yeah, and that's such an achievement too. It's so nice to be alive for it. You know, I feel like he's one of the greats and yeah. we get to experience his I rise think. now or his appearance now versus people that have passed away. I mean, some of the greats that we respect. So that's really cool to me to like, oh no, there's someone right now yeah. that's on that level, I would say. Most transformative performance experience? Hmm. <laughs> Let's not talk about Ludoslavsky again, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. Again, I've never, hands down, never gone into like a full out trance like that and disappeared. I actually thought now that it's coming up again, I wanted to add earlier in the performance, I went so crazy in the pizzicato section that I almost ripped my A string off. Like it made a horrendous snapping sound. And I looked over and saw that it was still attached, thank God, but completely slack. I had to find a moment in the piece to retune and like rewind the string. And somehow I managed, I don't think I got quite to an A. <laughs> I think I got to like an F sharp. I just remember like there was a moment, another pits moment where you were like, go drunk. Okay. So I was like, I don't think I quite got to an A, but I have to stop and come in on this extremely high note. I had no idea what pitch my string was at. And I had to just like plop my hand down. Ah. Anyway, so that was just the only moment in the piece where I snapped out of it briefly. Right. <laughs> Obviously, because that happened, but it was fixable. Thank yeah. goodness. I would also agree that was, for me, one of my most transformative performance experiences as well. I mean, of course, I mean, we can keep gushing about that, but um, <laughs> no, but there was really something fantastic about performing that piece and about the teamwork behind it. Knowing when people are signaling, it wasn't like that we had to play it exactly in this particular order, but that level of communication is just different. It's just unique. It's a total journey. You know, he didn't want it defined what the journey is or what the piece is about. 
I think he gives very vague descriptions on purpose. Like he says, you know, there's a crisis in the middle. And some people, of course, like to extrapolate, oh, this is about war. And after the crisis, the music is very, you know, more celestial, lighter, still exactly. And some people think it could be like spirits or the aftermath of, say, a nuclear bomb being dropped or something. You know, it's very heavy and that you definitely feel that performing it, whatever that may be, whatever you interpret the crisis to be, but it's a very heavy piece. And that's like, that's my favorite type of music to work on. Yeah. Next piece you'd like to learn? Ooh, I just prefer chamber music in general. It's probably my favorite medium. So that question earlier was pretty easy. So I would say maybe Beethoven, Opus 131, but it's like finding willing victims, you know, people that would want to sink their teeth into that and not being a fully formed professional quartet, you know, that would be quite a tall order. But I think that's a piece I've been fascinated by. It's key. It's so ahead of its time to me. It stands out. I would love to tackle that this next. particular one string day. quartet is written in seven movements but all ataka meaning continuous <laughs> this is continuous music it's unique in the way there's no pause that it seems programmatic you are going through <laughs> the story from start to finish and so i have had the pleasure of playing it and it is so great it's such an experience and yes. yeah i'll yes. learn i'll play it with you evo if i'm ever in san francisco again okay anyway evo you did it you made it through the spitfire oh good so Evo, can you tell me why and how you got into music and why viola and why did you decide to pursue it professionally and where are you now? Mm -hmm. So I started, you could say just was very fortunate because we, my family, my parents and I emigrated to the United States in 1995 when I was six years old. So in time to begin first grade in the U.S. And we happened to move to this affluent suburb of Chicago, Naperville. And they had a very, very good music program. Public schools were top-notch, plenty of funding in the school district. And so they literally let us try whatever instruments we wanted in third grade, I think, leading into fourth. So I think if it weren't for that, I wouldn't have even started. But having that opportunity was crucial. After that, I think it did take a few years to see that there was some potential talent, you could say, you know, without having had much instruction. It was very much like I played twice a week or something. <laughs> so it was pretty casual in the beginning. And I did start on violin for the record because I just didn't know any better. <laughs> I didn't notice. I don't think I was aware of viola. I really honestly don't recall until I was in middle school and I went to see Virginia, the Virginia Festival in the summertime where the Chicago Symphony plays. I went to see, they did like a Brandenburg and Charity program, <laughs> all of them. And then afterwards, they had a little recital in this theater near the gates. And there was, I think, a Tara Rod performed and I felt like, you know, do you remember that show Punked? Yeah. I felt completely punked. I was like, what? What is the sound? Wait, there's an instrument in between? Wait, there's an instrument that sounds, sorry, I mean, better? Wait. <laughs> 
what am I doing? No, I mean, I was, so I was playing violin yeah. for several years at that point. And there were all these little signs that I didn't want to do it or wasn't enjoying its timbre. I was obsessed with being principal second. I didn't want to be anywhere else. I wanted to be in a leadership position, but not in the first. I loved playing with the inner voice, inner voice team, connecting with the vlaws. Apparently I didn't know they were vlaws yet. Anyway, <laughs> but I forced myself to shift, like taught myself to play up on the A string so I never had to use the E string oh ever <laughs> over my dead body. Yeah. So like there were these weird signs that, yeah, the timbre just wasn't working for me. So that's why I say better because it was like, wait, what? There's an, ins oh no, like what am I doing? So as soon as I heard this recital on the way home, I just couldn't shut up and my parents had to listen to viola, viola, viola. So it was such an easy shift. There was no question. What did it feel like then to finally get a viola in your hand so was it a breath of fresh air or yeah very much so and I loved physically how it felt being able to finally sink in and I didn't feel like I had this tiny little thing under my chin and I could finally hunker down and embrace something that was to me felt more substantial literally I mean in course in size but yeah just that feeling of sinking into it melting into it on violin I felt like I couldn't do that or there was always a point where I did too much <laughs> So viola could kind of handle that. It just felt like the right fit for me and the role as well and the parts. I've always been more interested in the bizarre blue notes, interesting harmonies. I don't really want to play the melody like at all. I don't want to be bedrock either. I'm not really interested in setting the scene for everybody or being the foundation. I really want to mess around basically and be mysterious and be like, what? What was that? What is? What are you playing over there? That's far more interesting to me. It's extremely challenging, obviously, but that to me is the most interesting. But well, I continued progressing. Once I got to viola, it was very quick and again, organic and things just started. Like I joined Chicago Youth Symphony and that was probably when things really went next level. Like I started studying with the assistant principal of the Chicago Symphony, Lee Kuo Chang. And my high school orchestra was, well, we had eight orchestras. It was obscene. It felt like we were performing like full works. We did like Chichester Psalms one year. We did the Foray Requiem without violins. I don't know, public high school, I don't it's not the standard. No, certainly not. <laughs> um, not everywhere. It felt like going to college already. It was a big campus with a lot of students. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was just all very natural as high school was winding down to pursue music performance. I mean, what else was I doing? My gosh, it was like overdose. It was so much viola all the time. I played in a quartet too. So I already started gigging and we represented the high school. Like one time we went to the Grammy Awards because Nequa Valley High School, by the way, haven't said the name, won the National Grammy Award for Best Music Program in the oh. country. So they sent some of us to the Grammy Awards and we got to play for the Kronos Quartet, actually, at a luncheon. We did some Sashtkovich 8 for them. <laughs> for and them. then Yesterday by the Beatles, just to like be weird. I don't know. Anyway, there's all these great memories. And Chicago Youth Symphony, obviously. I cannot, I don't even realize till now, like looking back, how high level that group was. And my colleagues, like, the people that were in it, where they are today. And holy moly, 
yeah, so that's how I ended up going into music because, sorry, there really wasn't much more happening. Um, I was so entrenched and committed to that. So of course I pursued it. I actually auditioned for all these universities and SFCM was the only conservatory, but I fell in love with San Francisco and I wanted to go far, far away. And in the search process, I actually discovered I didn't want to go to a big school. So thank God I threw SFCM in there because whew, I, also people were telling me about Jody Levitz while I was there. So I almost accidentally discovered her as well mm-hmm. when I was visiting and I managed to get a lesson with her last minute. I know it didn't feel like fate, but you know, it was meant to be how it all kind of worked out last minute. Mm-hmm. And I got to see a chamber music class as well during we've, my visit. And that was another about thing. The chamber classes at San Francisco yeah. Conservatory and just how unique they are and how for me mm-hmm. formative for my development as a chamber musician and witnessing all my other colleagues perform on a weekly basis in front of all of us and watch the teachings of our professors on a weekly basis committed for two hours it's just anyway Mm -hmm. again I can rave all about it every time it comes up I feel like I have to talk and Mm -hmm. mention about just how incredible that class really is Uh, yeah you wouldn't realize till you were I don't know at a summer festival or you'd go away and realize how special that program was oh you don't play complete works here oh wait we're just doing like what you know and I didn't realize oh this must be really really rare oh god sadly but it's so nice to yeah have attended that's why I brought it up that was another huge checkpoint so then you to attend decided to go to SFCM and did four years in your undergrad there yes and then I did take that gap year as you mentioned and thought I would maybe go elsewhere for my master's but I'll just speak candidly I thought that that's just what you were supposed to do you're supposed to like go to another prestigious school and I don't know collect degrees I'm just being sarcastic but I felt I thought that was the normal thing to do so I tried to do it and again I realized in my auditions and my college searches that I didn't want to do that (laughs) so yeah it was a similar realization like wait I don't want to leave San Francisco I was starting to work there's a really enormous thriving freelance scene in San Francisco again I didn't know that when I chose to attend the conservatory but as I attended the conservatory and I started meeting people like I'd go to the mission district and sight read chamber music for a classical revolution at a cafe on Monday nights. And I met so many people that way. And that led to a lot of gigging and projects from the regulars there. That's just a random example. And you realize there's, I don't know how many regional orchestras in a really close distance. Like it's bonkers. (laughs) So I already started working a lot and I didn't see the point departing, starting from scratch. So I returned because I still felt like I needed to, you know, study a bit longer. So I came back for a master's degree at the conservatory. You know, that's when we did our Ludoslavsky again, had really excellent chamber music performances or memories and my own recitals too. It showed me what I was capable of, I guess, if I put my mind to it. Well, that's what you're supposed to do at school, yeah. too, is to challenge yourself. Right. And if Certainly. you can polish it that well in school, you can do most anything kind of idea. Yeah, exactly. So the performances are, I think, my main takeaway from my master's. Those opportunities, the collaborations I got to do with other musicians those two years. And I continued to work and strengthen my connections in the freelance community. So I was pretty much set when I graduated. I was 
running around. I was even going to Reno in 2014 to play with the Philharmonic there. That's still like one of my favorite gigs because you get a hotel room for a week and I don't know, it just feels like almost like vacation. I love it. That like nomadic lifestyle. And I've just stayed here ever since and have been freelancing for about, you know, good five years or so since I graduated. And then when 2020 came around and everyone Mm -hmm. started to do all the stay at home orders, you were one of the Mm -hmm. first people I called because I was worried about you and your prospects for work because I know that a lot of your work is very much freelance it's based on performance and also orchestrally based I wanted to make sure that you were okay or how you're managing all of that and if you're stable or needed help I mean obviously now it's 2021 and obviously you're still doing okay so I guess how you've been keeping afloat I guess I'd, I'd first of all would say I again was very lucky in March right when it hit like it was a good way to be sent off into the ether like here we go. All the groups that canceled concerts that month all reimbursed us. It felt like, okay, I have a minute to breathe here and recalibrate what the hell is happening. And also I kind of freaked out and applied for tons of grants. And some of the people, I, for example, the Magic Magic Orchestra, the founder, Mina Choi, was people like pulled together some resources and helped us. There were so many sweet gestures like that. That's a random example. So I felt like that was major. That really paid off because that helped me stay afloat for a very long time, five, six months or something. Because, you know, in the pandemic, I felt, you know, I didn't spend as much money. So I was able to make that last quite a while. And of course, good old unemployment. I also hopped on that. Yeah, because I think maybe for the listeners, they can gather, I haven't mentioned any teaching. So I don't have that income to fall back on like many colleagues do in this. So yeah, it was very important to me to (laughs) save myself or, you know, try to get some pandemic assistance that I did. Yeah, so that helped for a really long time. And in the meantime, there have been little virtual projects, things that have trickled in, recording things at home, or, you know, socially distanced outdoor weddings. People still like tried to have somehow with very few guests, you know, mask, all that jazz. So it hasn't been completely like hard stop, but it's hard to say, you know, we're still in the, I don't know, in the thick of it. So I really can't say, are things slowly returning or is it going to just be like up and down, random bursts of work? As we're saying, even though we've turned the corner of another year, so many arts organizations, so many musicians, you know, we're still trying to make ends meet and we're still trying to keep performing and keep engaging the audience and engaging our communities in one way or another. So please don't forget that we do exist and that we are here and we are really trying to work hard. We're trying to do our best to keep ourselves stable. So just a friendly reminder, (laughs) don't forget about the musicians. Is there any specifics that you wanted to mention with any of the orchestras you're a part of? Oh, you know, we, you heard them at the beginning of the podcast that I've been playing in San Jose Chamber Orchestra and Opera San Jose for three years now and San Jose Chamber for like, like six, especially San Jose Chamber, like because that was my first contract. Barbara Day Turner, the conductor, is such a force. She's so supportive. Even in the pandemic now, she's trying to find ways for us to still perform or use archival performance materials. And yeah, she's always, she always had, has the musicians' backs. And it's interesting because the chamber orchestra, San Jose Chamber Orchestra doesn't have your typical like board. It's just kind of run by her and her assistant. So she really does everything she can to take care of us. 
One Found Sound has been quite active during the pandemic with virtual performances. Lots of cute things. Are you ready for a break? No. Sure. I don't like breaks. Yeah, we could take one. Okay. If you'd like to take one. All right. Okay. We'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So before the break, I had yet another memory that I cherish a lot between the two of us. And actually it involves Carla, who is one of the past guests, where she talks about historic art house cinemas. Because when she used to work at the clay, we would go and watch The Room together. I think there was once a month, I believe, or something like that. It was I, like every second Saturday of every month. Yeah. Yeah. Second Saturday. Very frequently to go watch The Room. Yeah. I don't know if it's historically the worst movie, but at at least in popular culture, it's considered one of the worst movies ever made. And yeah. Tommy, what's his last name? Do you remember? Wizzo. Yeah. Wizzo. Right. Yeah. He filmed it in San Francisco. So there's even more of a lineage and connection to the Bay Area and us watching it yes. there. You had ramped up the hype going to the clay to watch this movie. Anyway, that was just a fond memory that came up that I felt like I had to bring it up when you're on. He loved podcast. inviting people to that thing, watching their reactions to it, especially when they were like, oh, I've seen some bad movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Bring it on. And then just knowing you see them two minutes in, they're like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, thank you. And that just made it all that much more hysterical and having just basically trashing the film the yeah. entire time. Yeah. So enjoyable. Yes. But anyway, it's let's really let's move forward from talking about the room. As long as I've known you, one defining characteristic is your ability to find some really unique fashion items. And oftentimes you'll find them at a highly discounted rate at a secondhand <laughs> store, or at least when I was in San Francisco, just the number of specific pieces that you would pick out. I think that that is uniquely you, although I know you don't like me using the word unique, <laughs> but I am. And I also, you know, a lot of things that you would wear, and I think you still do, it was really a lot of black and white, but the accent colors that you would bring to that palette oh. would be very specific. I think there are some boots that you were really fond of once that you're I think they're kind of a reddish hue or something like that well yeah there's some red suede tods maybe that's what you're referring to yeah and so what was fun for me was you would say like look what I just got and kind of show off this recent (laughs) item and you'd always advertise it in such a luxurious way you'd say like look at her she's so silky and stuff like that (laughs) no it was so fun it was so great I'm not you know it was very entertaining and so can you tell me and describe what that experience is like for you when you go into let's say a place like it's called wasteland yeah right it's a journey right we're all on our journeys yeah it's a trying to find my aesthetic over the years and like what I want to be seen wearing and how I want to present myself yeah I guess to circle back or start with wasteland that's a really formative basically thrift store I discovered it's in the hate Ashbury district of San Francisco and there's more locations in a Southern California, like on Melrose, which is like where all the thrift stores are down there in LA. But yeah, the one in SF, I would say made my home, but I have shopped there so many years. I've lost count of the amount of pieces I've acquired. I think I was able to explore my aesthetic and find what I wanted to don constantly going there. And 
I'm just very grateful to have that place because I could always find something or there were things there that I didn't realize I liked until I saw them. Like there it was like, bam, like, holy moly. Like I'd never thought I'd, I don't know, want to try on this floor length Gucci coat looks ridiculous but I put it on and it felt like a million bucks like I had transformed into some creepy vampire and I purchased it and I wear it to this day and I picture that in my mind as I like strut around just getting to play with your looks and get people noticing and wondering like what's going on there <laughs> oh lord but that's very expressive to me and it's nonverbal. I don't have to do anything I love that kind of expression that freedom and I love knowing I live somewhere where I can be that way. So I think it keeps me grateful and aware of my surroundings too, in a weird way. I get that. That if you were to don the same clothing that you identify with, you're not sure if that would be accepted in other parts of the world or country or wherever you Absolutely. There's something about San Francisco, which I mean, I can accredit to as well. Like there's something about that city that's just totally accepting and you can be yourself and no one's going to judge you for it. Of course, that's a kind of a blanketed statement, but there's certainly a vibe where everyone's welcome. It's (laughs) totally part of it. Yeah, it's all intertwined. I think I realized that as I was saying it just now that, oh, when I realize I am able to wear these things or express myself as I see fit in my presentation. It's thanks to where I live too. And it's allowed me to become more comfortable and find myself as well. And it's good to remember that and be thankful for where you can reside. (laughs) That's huge. So that's definitely a part of it. Yeah. So what kinds of clothing are you drawn to? Or what in particular catches your eye and says, oh, that's something I would definitely wear. And that's a part of my self-expression that I want to Mm -hmm share with everyone who sees me. I wouldn't say it's a checklist per se. I don't really think of it that way in the moment, but it is a very strong visceral reaction to the piece. But I'll put it perhaps in the way of a list. I need to interpret the item as, here's that word, unique, either in the sense you won't really be seeing this round. There aren't 12 other copies behind it on a rack. (laughs) It can also be based on who made it. Like if I know the designer, I find that impressive personally, or I think it's cool that I can say walk into Wasteland and encounter. Again, I'm looking at, I chose some pieces in front of me here. I can see just to jog my memory. But look, there were these gold sneakers by Balenciaga. And I thought, holy crap, I could never ever have this normally. But at this store, I'm lucky enough to encounter these incredible pieces somebody else just discarded and sold. That to me is so, it's so cool to have that at my fingertips or have access to that so that's very important to me too like I saw these like it's like now or never you know committing to say purchasing something like that I just know that that's unique right there it checks off all those avenues of what unique could constitute and then it needs to feel very well constructed or the materials need to feel heavy or soft shiny I think soft is a very important one for you (laughs) Right. And you actually reminded me because you said that, oh, feel this. It's so silky. That is huge to me. Like it needs to be luxe in some capacity. That is, I think that is the goal. Like it needs to be somehow superb, special. It needs to literally sparkle, get my attention. So that's how, you know, it could be any number of those things. And 
I am very comfortable, like you said earlier, in black and some white and just keeping things really monochromatic. And then if I want to play with it, I could throw in like a really bright pair of socks that pop out just enough. Or I could choose like some psychotic pair of shoes and everything else is extremely subdued. That's also important to me because it's like respecting the item that you're trying to feature or that the outfit's all about. You can't just put on all your ridiculous finds from Wasteland, so to speak. Well, you could, but again, sensory overload. Yeah, that's how I would describe what I'm looking for. When you're looking for your base fundamentals, let's say black or white or any of that kind of monochromatic scale, Mm -hmm. are there even things within that that draws your eye more than just like, oh, just a plain black t-shirt? Yeah, it definitely applies. But I like things very fitted. You could say suffocatingly tight clothing as a base. So I will go bigger, chunkier with sweatshirts and jackets, perhaps. But I like my t-shirts or button-down shirts and pants to be very, very form-fitting. I like a very like slim silhouette, very streamlined. I don't like the way chunky, oversized clothing, at least my base layer, I'd never want to look like that or like see a bunch of loose stuff stuck. I like things to fall and uh, svelte. I mean, that was the word. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So when you're looking at, say, a predominantly black wardrobe, those pieces need to catch your eye somehow, whether they have a nice texture or sheen. So I definitely look for that too, because I mean, at this point, what, how many black shirts do I own, right? But there needs to be something you could say. Now, this is funny like to my own credit not to toot my own horn but I kind of dressed like David on Schitt's Creek you know in what? some ways I, long I, before the show. Oh, I know that. I know. No, I'm sorry. I'm freaking out because, okay. It's yeah. funny. Yeah. Right. Well, so I have this. In so many ways, I thought, it reminds um, me of David. And David is my favorite character on the show. So thank you. Thank you. That's how I heard about the show because people were enough that. people were telling me that they thought of me when they saw his character. But yeah, I found we have the same clothing. Like I have the same pieces that he's wearing on the show. Like Not there's literally. this uh, Neil Barrett designed these black and white shirts with white lightning bolts all yeah, over yeah, them. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Used in a lot of the promo material for Shit's Creek. And I, I was like, oh, I have that. <laughs> Oops, yeah. like long before. So show. now here's my question. Of course, I knew that you were basically David in person <laughs> from Shit's Creek. Thanks. How does it make you feel now that you, as you're saying, you have all these pieces in your wardrobe, but then yet it's not unique anymore. It's mm-hmm. part of an identity for David's character. Oh, I don't like mind David, that or, too much. And like Dan Levy as an actor too. I think he right. and David are very closely linked. I don't think there's mm-hmm. a far stretch when it comes to his character character and that's why he does it so well right (laughs) yeah there might be a lot of similarity when i watch david i'm like i feel kind of emboldened too it reminds me like there's totally a place for someone like myself in the world and like i might even meet someone you know like things like that it's it's a really encouraging show anyway that's not the point but i just thought it'd be funny for the listeners to hear like i literally have like things david words on schitt's creek (laughs) in my closet but that's i think it's a really similar aesthetic. There's so many fun textures and luxe fabrics you see. So if you need a visual, you know. Yeah, but it doesn't conflict with one of your let's I mean, I know you don't have a checkbox item, but like it doesn't conflict with the idea that you're having individual, unique, one of a kind pieces. No, because this is just a character on a TV show. I'm still who I am. And I found the pieces I found. And, you know, I still view that as all uniquely my own thing. So no, it's okay. 
I didn't suddenly see like, oh no, that shirt's on shit's creep, you know, oof, can't wear that can't anymore. Wear it. Yeah, yeah. Well, some <laughs> no, people it, that, are though, you know, that's that where I'm asking, right. you know, I mean, there is a trend in the fashion industry, basically where you buy clothing and then you just sell it back or you throw it away. It's like you just wear it for the Instagram photo and then you just, that's it, you know? Oh Lordy. For me, it's more of a collection so, and yeah. I've kept some things and I wear them, but sometimes a long time does pass. That's true. <laughs> How long do you keep each piece and do you ever sell them back or do you have them go out of, let's say, your normal rotation for a bit and then you introduce them slowly back or? I mean, honestly, I'd say I'd forget sometimes <laughs> that I have something because there's quite a lot at this point. It's funny you ask that because I think I just reached that precipice or that moment in life for the first time where I will need to probably sell and donate quite a lot of this collection or just the clothing I've acquired over the years because I've moved and it's going to be a long process, but I'm using the opportunity to downsize and purge and, you know, really evaluate what pieces I would like to have. Okay. So I know that you're wearing a shirt. I know that our listeners can't see the shirt, although mm -hmm. we'll put a photo on Instagram for anyone. And well, first of all, I know that you purposely wore the shirt to, you know, mm -hmm. be a part of the discussion. But even as I'm looking at your shirt, which is beautiful, it is also <laughs> on a black base, but yet there's a pattern. Yeah. And then there's also a very specific coloring to it, which is red and purple and a little bit of blue. Mary the two opposites together in purple. I remember when we were preparing for this episode recording, you were saying that you're experimenting with color more than mm. you might have done with an accent color. I think mm. that the shirt you're wearing is perfectly encapsulating what you're describing. Can you talk about why you're changing or why your tastes are changing or what's happening? <laughs> yeah, so I think in the pandemic the isolation and not running around playing like orchestras and <laughs> whatnot and seeing all these colleagues all the time, I feel more, even more free to explore and branch out. So I was just like randomly on Instagram one day and I started to see these bizarre prints of old video games and anime shows by this guy. Um, his username is Kikilo. K-I-K-I-L-L-O. The piece I'm wearing is the first thing I purchased. I call it laser tag colors. <laughs> I just love it. I remember when I was a kid, those neon glow-in-the-dark colors you'd see when you go in and start blasting everyone. But it's these monsters from a game that's from like, I want to say the end of the 80s. It's called the parade because I guess it's a parade of various monsters you would encounter in the game, like front and back. Are you saying that the game is called the parade? Or are you saying that... No, just he, this designer called the sweatshirt parade. I Got suppose. it. But yeah, in the game, you are releasing these monsters. So you're actually the antagonist. Oh. And you're trying to get, it almost looks like a Pac-Man map. And you're releasing monsters to get the people to keep climbing the tower. And when they get to the top, they're like sacrificed to this boss thing. I am not Which surprised. I just think it's so fun. I'm not I love surprised. that role reversal. <laughs> You're helping. You're like, okay, now they're about to turn the corner and I'm going to release this thing over here. Yeah. Like, which he pointed to a monster basically that had just a leech mouth as a face. Oh, scary. 
But yeah, again, I'm not surprised that you would be drawn to that kind of game. <laughs> yeah, it's this is definitely a departure for me because these are like very colorful and loud pieces. And maybe even not the shirt I'm wearing right now, but there are some like shorts with baby Godzillas doing battle on them, like Technicolor with crazy stuff flying, shooting fire out of their mouths. There is a pair of black sweatpants with a girl's face with tears running down, like just plastered all over it in purple. And it's called sad pants. That's another highlight. I thought those are the funniest. So I keep wearing my sad pants. Like we've had a couple outdoor porch performances with a colleague of mine and they were like such a hit. Like everyone's like, look at the sad pants. And there's like all these pictures and I keep seeing them like getting shared around and stuff. It's it's pretty humorous to me. Cause I think that those are funny acquirement I thought because they did encapsulate like the I don't know maybe some of the heaviness or emotion of the pandemic but it's also kind of it's funny it's cute the anime girls heads like all over these pants there's one of Sailor Moon and she has a very condescending look on her face and it says try again So like I've been wearing that one to like recording sessions because oh. it's like perfect for the different takes. Well, exactly. And like, take 2000, try again. <laughs> That's a random, another random example from some obscure video game. Like I think this guy has such an eye for, you know, it can't just put anything on a shirt or pants. Like he's really, he's well, found these He's catching obscure... the emotion behind the cartoon or whatever the video game art and puts it ironically on a shirt. Yeah, that's the humor behind it. Yeah, it's fun. I just, those are just four random pieces from this guy, Kakilo, but I love gallivanting around in it. But it's fun, like seeing people respond to it or sure. get a kick out of it, making them laugh. Or, but yeah, even at home, like you can still express yourself at home. That didn't change for me just because things shut down. I didn't suddenly think, oh, what's the point? I don't need to buy anything ever again, like piece of clothing. <laughs> It's like, no, like that's like I could play around more now than I would have hesitated, I think, if Miss COVID hadn't come around. I've, yeah, I've tried to turn it into a big positive, you know, a time for self-exploration and stepping out of your comfort zone, further evolving. Yeah. Why is aesthetic important to you? Yeah, that is a big question. I don't know if I'm entirely sure why, but I definitely have this obsession with standing out, differentiating myself, which is like probably very relatable or it's not that rare to hear someone say that. I just think it's funny that you just said that because you were just saying why viola was something that interested you because it wasn't putting a spotlight on you. So thank you. Actually, that that helps even more because that puts it in a better context. Yeah, so I was going to bring up, it's not just as simple as wanting to stand out or, I don't know, be unique or whatever. I'm obsessed with finding a way to do it in a subtle way and a more mysterious way or like intriguing way. It's an art. It's not just, I'm going to put on a neon green jacket and clown makeup because I just want to troll everyone. It's not that. It's like that subtlety, that fine art of making people take a second look, get people's attention, but not in an egregious way. And it's similar, you could say viola or playing like blue notes or interesting harmonies. I'm trying to find those in like the pieces I wear and myself, my presentation to the world. I want to be intriguing. And this is how I share that with people because I'm not going to be talking to everybody, especially now with the masks on and stuff and isolated. But I feel like I can make statements this way, again, in a respectful, subtle way. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. You can view that from a distance. 
safely. Hopefully, I don't know, maybe like I said earlier, it might brighten your day or it might get you inspired or like, that was cool. Like maybe someone might see something like this and find it for themselves. I mean, whatever they might want to put on. It definitely comes across the amount of time and care you put into the way you dress yourself and the way that you present yourself. And I think that that does make a huge difference in how people react to you in a positive way. That's where I'm saying like I was definitely attracted to how you're presenting yourself and what you're wearing because I knew like even the person on the end uni train the first time not at Cafe Creme I knew that oh it's the same person the same (laughs) this is the same viola case same look it's a definite identity anyway yeah I think it's a way that the way I introduce myself to the world our identity to something is so malleable and I think that's part of why fashion is uh, art form fashion is expression and it really it bums me out when people categorize say the fashion industry as like a vapid superficial world that has no substance that really grates my gears you just said it it's an art form it's self-expression and that's important people should express themselves and if that's the way they want to do it it's absolutely valid and important and a vital part of our world or society it's so easy to dismiss you know because what it's a t-shirt or something it's obviously more to it than that it's how you view yourself when you're wearing it it's not about the item itself yeah and i think it started i don't know if this is interesting to add the fact that we're performers i think that was a window into dressing up it started i think with that putting on like fancy concert black for whatever and i was like i like this i want to just wear this all the time (laughs) i mean so to speak especially in orchestra even with a chamber group i mean you can have a little bit more of a fashion expression in a chamber group but especially in orchestra you are supposed to wear all black and even sometimes it's really up to the very specific details so i think you're bringing up a really good point to say that you are trying to find little avenues of expression even when you're sitting on stage Oh, I don't know if you actually did it on stage, but the fact that the palette was always black, you're basing it off of that aesthetic and then trying to make it an individual in addition to the masses of being on an orchestral stage. Yeah. And also, yeah, I can wear like this crazy pair of black dress shoes. Like that'll be my way of. Right. And just people being like, holy, oh dear. Like I saw, like after the concert, someone's like, I missed my entrance because... No, they did. The patent leather blinded me. Just kidding. <laughs> no, no. But I've heard things like, yeah, I, I mean, I was like admiring your shoes and mm-hmm. missed my entrance. And <laughs> no. Just, uh, really? Well, hopefully. Yeah. I'm hopefully. <laughs> Not in the concert. Oh, Lord. Let's go with rehearsal. Right. In the rehearsal. Dress rehearsal. Evo, can I ask you a couple more questions? Yes, you may. What, in your opinion, is the most common misconception of classical music and the classical music world? Ooh. Oh, dear. Where do I start? Uh, I, I don't know if I have something super cliche hasn't already been said because well the first thing that pops into my mind is that it's yeah, it's a dying art form. It's not inclusive. It's elitist. And the musicians are like, we don't really care. Like, we're happy to participate in that world. And I just feel like, especially in the pandemic, oh, if anything, look what exists. Look at what's continuing to thrive and adapt. That's proof that classical musicians are not those things 
we're trying so hard to connect and perform virtually and reach audiences in innovative ways. We're not just like, oh, well, the concert hall got closed, so I'm finished sharing my music. It's nice to see that, how hard people are trying to connect. And it's for the music world, at least, it's changing the way we do things. And I think it might be for the better because now we have no choice. Before it was easy to continue on with the status quo, especially the orchestras. But now we have to adapt. And that's the best kind of change like where you just don't have a choice and you evolve because you have to. I think there will be some yeah, great changes coming out of this time. And I think they'll stay. They'll stick around. I don't want to get too specific, but. Well, okay. Well, basically you've begun to answer the second question. Oh, so oops, if you want yeah. to get specific, then you can. But after all the impact that COVID has done to classical music, what do you think is something positive that will enhance and carry on in our profession? So change is one of them. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally right. is what you're saying. We are having a vision in our profession and that we are adapting and trying to get up to date with what <laughs> our audiences really want from us, even if they they don't know what they want because all we've been giving them is what we've been doing for the past century. Exactly. And now we won't. We cannot. So it works out. You know, those outdated, old-fashioned concerts and etiquette rules are gone because now you can watch in your jammies with a drink and scream and clap the entire time, whatever you want to do. So Throw spoons yeah. at the screen if you want. You, you know. We could recreate the room <laughs> every time we see like the last chair violist mess up. Just kidding. They don't do that. <laughs> but yes, exactly. We could find like a, a spoon cue to start right. throwing. I was going to mention, this is actually now kind of bouncing back to the previous question, but I was going to say to bring up a group like One Found Sound again, or your kinetic ensemble, or Magic Magic Orchestra, whatever. But One Found Sound, that's literally what the point was for the founders. Finally creating a group, you know, for people to discover classical music in a non-pretentious way. And I love to play to this day because of those. Some of my favorite memories are actually these after parties and seeing the people that came out to these concerts. It's such a different demographic than like my freeway philharmonic existence. And those feel more like, sorry, but more like a job. Can I quickly you define checks, what so. you mean by freeway philharmonic? Yeah, I just realized I hadn't said that <laughs> until now. You, or would you like yeah. to describe it? Yeah, it's it's simple. Like the nickname came from hopping around the Bay Area, driving to all these orchestras. There's just so many. And sometimes you can play multiple ones in the same day you could do a triple or a quad god forbid <laughs> good for your coffers but you could like start in you know marin symphony drive to the east bay and play like another rehearsal <laughs> there's california symphony oakland symphony then you can keep going south there's like fremont symphony there's further out like fresno stockton I know that the freeway philharmonic term is very specifically in San Francisco, but I have heard it used outside of San Francisco. And for me, the general term is if you are spending more time on the freeway than you are in rehearsal. Ah, uh, yes, that's true. That's part of it. So yes, therefore, it's the freeway philharmonic because all the musicians are on the freeway rather than in rehearsal. I, for several years now, I accept work based on commutes. I mean, is it even possible? with Bay Area traffic. Crazy. Are there any platforms or websites for our listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects? I don't self-promote much. 
that's kind of terrible. It's a little sin of mine. Yes, I would. As we've mentioned before, we talked about One Found Sound several times. I would definitely steer people to onefoundsound.org and you'll be able to see what they've got cooking up. And, you know, you might even see yours truly <laughs> in something, <laughs> but they're really doing a great job of navigating the pandemic. So you can see what we're up to and what kinds of events we'll have. Great. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, go ahead and press that subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews and ratings help this podcast be more visible to others, and it's a free way to support the podcast. Another free way, though, is to tell your friends and family about it, and you can always become a part of the Hidden Behind the Music Stand family by donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hideinmusicstand. Don't forget, there's a Spotify playlist available that contains all the pieces we've discussed on the podcast which evo really added a lot more to this <laughs> playlist which is great it's all really great music and the link is always in the description of each episode follow us on social media facebook instagram and twitter all at hide music stand for more content thanks so much for being on the podcast evo My it's pleasure. been so great to catch up and talk about your true identity and how you got to viola and all the things my pleasure Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. And one day, hopefully, we can play Ludoslavsky's string quartet again. Awesome. And maybe learn that Opus 131, too. Oh, yeah. And do that, too. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. The same program. Just yeah. annihilate oh, yeah. the audience. Great idea. Yeah. <laughs> and ourselves. Yeah. And ourselves, yeah. Perfect. And thanks for listening. Say bye, Sushi.